the more specific someone is to their tiny local experience, the more global it will feel in a way. Because if you talk about this tiny town in Iowa, it can feel more relatable to the tiny town in another continent. Hello, TEDx organizers, and welcome to Solving for X, our global campfire where we talk about the art of organizing a TEDx event. I'm your host, Jay Harati, and today's special guest is Chloe Shasha. She's the Speaker Development Director here at TED. After you have selected the speakers for your stage, the next most important part is to prepare the speakers to give the talk of their life. And we're going to be asking Chloe about how we prepare speakers for the TED stage. And fun fact before we begin is that we've come to know Chloe in 2010 because she was also a TEDx organizer. She then joined the TEDx team before she moved on to her current role at TED. Chloe, welcome to Solving for X. Thank you, Jay. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Tell everyone what it is that you do here at TED. So I am the Speaker Development Director at TED, which means that I'm overseeing the communication processes of the curation team to speakers. But then I also work on a fair number of other things. So I manage our team of fact checkers. Then I also work on some um, research and curation of some events and pitch. And then I work on one of our podcasts called Sincerely X, so anonymous TED Talks. Okay, so you do, you do a lot of things, obviously. Um, we're going to focus really on the process of preparing speakers right after they have been selected. And so I'd love to do this a little bit chronologically. What we want today is a total brain dump of everything that you've learned and that we do here at TED. Walk us through the timeline and the steps. Yeah, we have multiple specialized curators, and then we have more general ones like me and some others. And so after we've chosen people and we've decided to invite them for a conference, um, we get them set up with a few key people for their logistics. So um, we want to make sure that they're registered for the conference, uh, they get a whole next steps note with timelines and deadlines, and then we really set them up with the draft delivery process. So uh, a thing that we have created now is this process of first readers and second readers. So the first reader is the person who invited them, typically, and the second reader is someone who might be a good pairing with that person to read and give more perspective on the talk. What's the profile of the first reader and the second reader? Are they coming from the same background, or do they have two different backgrounds? Usually different backgrounds. Usually the first reader is like a specialized person. If it's a scientist, it's our science curator, artist, our design curator. And then the second reader is someone who might add another lens in a cool way. And we try and think about that strategically. Right, but I guess one of the main goals would be that, that it would not be a scientist talking to a scientist, that somebody can sit on the side and say, yeah, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. Exactly. Yeah, we, we're always trying to make sure that the language is clear for people who aren't in the field. So once there are two readers assigned, we basically ask for drafts, and we have this whole process where our team sends it around internally to the first reader, the second reader, Chris and Helen, and um, we get back to that speaker within five days of that draft. What was that first outline that you said you're sending with logistics? What goes in that? So that next steps note has a lot of things. It says, this is how you register for the conference. This is the person who will book your flights. That's someone in Vancouver, typically, mm -hmm. our speaker concierge. Um, these are the things to look out for in the next few months. You're going to have drafts due. You're going to get your draft fact-checked by the time it's pretty ready to go. You're going to have slides if you want or videos. If so, here's the process for clearing so them of copyright guidelines and um, for submitting them and what the specs are. 
Um, this is what to expect with the, the timeline around scripts and feedback. This is when your video rehearsal will be. Don't worry, it's not a locked video rehearsal. That's more like a workshop. We'll still give you feedback there. And then on site, you'll have another rehearsal. All kinds of details. And then we also include a, a summary of Chris's book in that Next Steps note. So it's a PDF that we've uh, created. It's like a more detailed resources in the email, but less detailed in the book. Nice. So the good news is we have a copy of that outline that we sent, and it's available on the TEDx Hub under the name of this episode uh, in Solving for X. Um, okay, so that was the first outline. And so... Um, now, the first step, as you started describing, is doing the written draft. So talk through this first draft meeting. Well, so the first reader has spent time on the phone, usually, or in person, with the speaker, um, saying, you know, discussing what the talk will be. Um, so send us your first outline focusing on this general premise. And then they'll do that, and we will have the first and second reader leave comments. And then the first reader will communicate back. What, what are some of the common pitfalls or the things that people do that need tweaking or, or preparing? So it actually really varies person by person. Some people will send us like six bullet points with less than 100 words, right? And that's mm. not all that useful, but it is useful as opposed to waiting two more weeks and then getting a, a draft a completely that's totally draft, yeah. right or something that's not at all in line with what we were discussing. Other people have been in discussions for so long with the curator that they're ready to send a whole draft. And at that point, um, we are reading it, you know, word by, word by word, but we're also thinking about how do we restructure this before we get into the nitty gritty of like the language. So recently we discussed as a team, when you receive a first draft, instead of going in and saying, oh, I don't like this sentence, move that, just leave notes at the top, generally about how you feel about the talk then that first reader will communicate sort of all of that at once. And then the next draft will go in line by line. So for the bigger TED events, you've got a bigger team working with you. I know for some of our smaller events, you do it almost on your own. Uh, do you follow the same process when you are when you're doing a smaller event? Yeah, so we still have next step notes and all that, but it is much more scrappy. Um, we would love to have as many curators working on it as we do for the big events, but we can't. So um, in those cases, we still will have a second reader. It's just good to have like another opinion. But usually one person will work on all the scripts. And in that case, I mean, process has to go out the window in some moments because you're you know you're down to the wire. Um, in those moments, it's really more about um, being in touch with the speaker all the time. So you're having emails with those speakers saying, hey, I know you said you sent a draft Friday, it's Monday, um, where are you at? Here are the things that we talked about as a reminder. So it's a lot more work in a way because you're just constantly communicating. Right. Um, so it does feel different when it's a smaller event and I do think that's more similar to a TEDx event which I remember because I organized a TEDx event that's right. in 2010. <laughs> that's, so. right. that's, how, that's how we got you. <laughs> um, okay, so now you have the first draft. You read it. You either received an outline or something a little bit more written. Uh, what tend to be the biggest points of feedback that you give at that point? So in the beginning, one thing that can happen a lot is that speakers are used to giving long talks. So they think... Um, all right, this is a short talk, right? Most of our talks are 12 to 15 minutes these days. Um, why don't I just summarize all of the key things that I do in my life and make it uh, sort of like a bunch of uh, abstracts from a journal article? That doesn't land. 
as you all know, TEDx organizers, no one wants to listen to that, right? <laughs> so we're trying to get them to be specific. And that is one of the hardest things in the beginning because it just means being specific also means killing your darlings. You have to get rid of a lot of content and really focus on a few things. So often that's the beginning feedback is this is really general. No one will remember this as well as if you were to go into detail here. And we don't need to hear about the entire history of your organization or the entire research team that you work with. Give us a few key moments and then we'll and we'll think about the idea with that. Hmm. Interesting. So is there a second draft or do you just move right into the rehearsals after the first? Yeah, yeah. I mean, ideally, we'd have like five drafts before rehearsal. It doesn't happen with everybody. Sometimes it's one. I would say on average, it's like two or three for people who aren't you know, the people who reach back out to us because they want feedback. So there's kind of like a few types of speakers, right? There's the ones who don't want anything. There's the ones who are following our process, and that's like two or three drafts probably. And then there's the ones who are like emailing and texting a lot. Who really need the confidence of a really work well worked through. Yeah, and they just appreciate the help or they want the help or whatever. What about the ones who don't want to submit uh, the first one? What do you do? So there's sort of this running joke that... Um, uh, any artists speakers don't want to write <laughs> right. um, sure not all of them but that can happen a fair amount so one of our curators who's our design curator she uh, spends a fair amount of time on the phone listening to people talk about what they'd want to talk about and what we just decided recently is let's record those conversations and get them transcribed and then later someone will go through and sort of turn that conversation into a talk draft that way there's just something to work from the, the person may not actually speak from that, but if they want a draft and they just don't want to write the experience of what they're thinking about, that's a way for us to help them is to just t- transcribe. And there's really cheap transcription services like Rev.com and other things where you can just send it there and get it back and edit it yourself. And how do you navigate their egos? If they, if they, are, if they give a public talk every week and you now tell them you've got to write four drafts and rehearse three times... <laughs> How do you manage that? Yeah, my, my strategy has become, and I don't even know if it's a strategy, it's just, it's just sort of what is true, is I say, I am not an expert on your, your topic. I'm not an expert in your field. I am a listener who represents people who aren't experts in your field, and I'm telling you that this will not land. Mm. And so I basically just reflect back to them how an audience that might be more diverse than their standard audience, and not that I'm a diverse person in myself, I'm one person, but I have a sense of like what might be confusing or boring or repetitive or just kind of generally, um, you know, not as strong as it could be. Okay, so we've now come to the rehearsal time. We have some kind of a draft that we're comfortable with. How long before the actual talk do you usually do the first rehearsal and then what happens in that rehearsal? So for bigger conferences, we try and set up the rehearsals because because the big conferences have like you know 50 to 70 to 80 speakers we set those rehearsals up like two months or three months in advance the smaller events like the ones that are more like TEDx events we probably do those a month out or six weeks out um, if those have six to eight speakers um, and in those rehearsals and maybe I'll talk about the small events first mm. we you know, we say, all right, this is a chance to get a sense of where you're at. It's okay if you're not done. Um, we're going to time you, and then we're going to share feedback, and we're also going to record this so you can listen to it later and get a sense of what we said. And then, you know, there's a lot of questions, a lot of nervousness typically, and then they start, and we're taking notes, and 
then we sort of go around the room, depending on how many people are in there, share the feedback, and get their reaction to our feedback. And then we say, all right, please send us another thing in exactly you know, five days or one week to keep them on schedule. And I find that that moment, just even the conversation opportunity and the, you know, we do it over video often, so we see them. It's so much more effective than sometimes just the script feedback because it's so hard to ingest something in writing as compared with um, a conversation mm. for some people, I think for most people, honestly. And, um, and I find it really rewarding that moment because it, it's like we finally get on the same page. Um, it's pretty much the same for bigger conferences. It's just that we have a uh, more uh, streamlined process because you know Chris is involved. It, it's usually his first time seeing a lot of those talks, so he gives a different lens on feedback for that person than the curator who's been working with them and the second reader. And as an observer in that room, uh, what do you observe is the kind of feedback that Chris gives that may be different from the uh, curator? And I know it's hard to generalize, but looking at hundreds of talks that you've probably now done, do you have any insights on that? One other thing that I really appreciate um, that recently happened in a rehearsal is his ability to communicate when a piece of content that's shared, like a video, is informative versus manipulative. And mm. I found that to be so useful as a way to describe it to a speaker. So this person showed a video that she wanted to include in her talk. And it's a video that her organization uh, showcases as a tool for users of the, her product. But um, he was like, this video is good, but it's designed to manipulate. Not in a bad way. It's just an effective tool to manipulate and make people engage in what you're trying to make the world care about. We don't want that in this talk. We want something that illustrates what you're trying to say. And she's like, oh, actually, I have other videos that are shorter and that kind of are just little like tools for understanding my points. So she played those. And that was such a great solution to the problem. And, and I, I think that's the kind of thing that he's really good at highlighting in moments that are hard to really parse out. But he has that language for nuance. There are a number of people in that first rehearsal and sometimes the talk can be really far from ready right because this is the very first process and there could be a lot of feedback and it could be sometimes quite demoralizing or intimidating to the speakers what did you find is a good way of giving feedback from like three or four or sometimes more people sitting around listening uh without completely um, you know destroying the spirits of the speaker yeah one thing that we've done now is we're like all right the only people in the room are you know the first reader second reader and sometimes one other person sometimes our head of speaker coaching but um, it's smaller and then the other people who need to watch it we actually have them watch from a another room mm. in the office and if there's anything that they need to chime in with technically like around the video they'll chat one of us and we can actually ask it so that's one thing the other thing is just noticing how the speaker is doing like I think it's pretty easy to tell if we're overwhelming a person some people are like bring on the feedback I love this right but other people are like oh okay well I was really thought you know I thought that that's what blah 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 said I should do and now you're telling me I shouldn't do it and that happens right like one person will contradict the other from a previous draft like the new listener will say that the old thing was better or something right um, so in those moments we start to say okay you know what you're right we're really honest we're like sometimes a new listener might actually like a thing that your main curator told you to remove so um if that happens let's take this offline you and the curator can discuss and we'll we'll con consolidate the feedback 
after this call and we'll give it to you. So, you know, no need to take notes. Also, we're recording this, so you don't need to take notes, but some people like to. Um, but we will we will figure right. out a way to align before we share this with you. So it's very case by case, but I think that being a human being and noticing if a person <laughs> yeah. is overwhelmed is the number one most important thing. Yeah. And I assume also in that rehearsal, you, what begins to emerge is <clears throat> the personal style of the, the speaker or kind of whether whether you've been able to preserve their uniqueness and authenticity and also whether they're following some formula that they think is maybe the right formula to follow. How do you how do these come out and what do you do about that? Yeah huge issue and, and right now we're actually trying to tackle that specifically so i think a lot of people think they have to sound like sir ken robinson um not that he's a bad example he's a wonderful example which is why he's so popular but if someone tries to emulate another style it feels forced it's obviously forced and it's almost uh it feels inauthentic to right. the audience so we're trying to communicate that we want your style we want you to do what you do you know once we get to the rehearsal we're like hey, we've noticed that in conversation, you sound like this, but when you're giving the talk, you suddenly have this other voice or your pitch changes or you get uh, almost overly dramatic in terms of the, the tonal shifts. Like we all agree monotone is not helpful, but you also talk a little bit with less emphasis when you're in conversation and it sounds more natural. People will respond better to that if you speak that way on the stage. Will you try and just say that paragraph you just read to us as like spoken language. So we have tools in the moment to get people to be more natural. And, um, and then that's also different than when they're on stage, on site for the rehearsal, which we can talk about after. But that's when we get to see how they move and all that. And we can kind of encourage them to do some body exercises and breathing exercises to relax so that mm. they're not stiff or they're not you know, pacing in a very specific way, things like that. I heard from some TEDx events that they try not to give any feedback other than positive feedback in the last 24 hours. Uh, what is your philosophy on that? Yeah, I mean, I would love to also hold that philosophy. Uh, but in some cases, it's like someone is just clearly not ready. And the reasons for that are, you know, are not anyone's fault necessarily. Like they're, they're, that can just happen for multiple reasons. And so, I mean, the nice thing is we have enough of us typically on site that one person will take on really working with that person for, you know, the next two days. And because we have a multi-day conference, so we right. can we can afford that. Right. The other thing is, I mean, I, I've had an experience on site a, a few years ago where I worked with one speaker who had been invited to TED the week before TED. And I worked with him every night for about four hours until the last day of the conference when he gave his talk and then it was ready. Mm. So that can happen too. And on that note, in terms of making the talk as appealing to as broad an audience as possible, I'm interested in the local versus global angle. I know for TEDx organizers, uh, it's a really big issue because many of the speakers are from local communities addressing issues that are very local to their city or their town and their country. But we do want those talks to spread far and wide how do we get people to speak to a global audience? What yeah. tips do you give them? That is a huge, um, it, it, it's a really important goal for us is to make these talks feel as global as possible. One thing that's not necessarily obvious is that the more specific someone is to their tiny local experience, the more global it will feel in a way. Because mm. if you talk 
generally about, you know, like the United States, blah, blah, blah. That feels like a talk that's quite American. But if you talk about this tiny town in Iowa, Hmm. it can feel more relatable to the tiny town in another continent in some ways because you're just dealing with human dynamics, politics, you know, all the things that happen among other people whenever there's a community. So being specific really helps with that. But then also the language around what you're talking about. So we we try and take away phrases like in this country because you're not in this country. First of all, our main flagship conference is in Vancouver, (laughs) which is not even in this country of the United States. (laughs) But the other thing we try and say is, um, you know, things that are references that feel quite American, like maybe movies or books, like we'll, we'll leave them if they're really big references, but if they're more niche, we'll ask them to think about how to use a different analogy um, that works at a more global level. But it's hard. I mean, in no way do I feel like we have succeeded at that. I think we are, you know, we're a Western lens organization, even if we have an international staff, um, it's hard to get these talks to really reach across borders. And we're trying by having more and more um, international speakers who can speak to things that are niche for them. And we'll keep trying. By the way, were you a TEDx organizer before you joined here? Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. so you've gone from being a TEDx organizer and then you joined here. I feel like you've worked on our team for a little while yes. at TEDx. But then you've really grown beautifully at TED and you've done <laughs> many, many nice things. Um, tell us something that you've learned through preparing speakers, maybe something that surprised you that you would have not thought about kind of intuitively, but it, it's kind of something new that you've learned. Thank you, Jay, for those nice things. Um, I uh, feel like one of the funniest parts of the job is working and interacting with famous people. Not a thing that I thought about really going into it. One thing that's uh, personal to me is that I grew up without a TV, so I don't really know that many famous people. Like I, I know the people I deem to be important, but as for like other people who are kind of vaguely you know celebrities, celebrities in yeah. different ways i've never i've never felt starstruck by them because they were never stars to me so i'm someone who has met people and been, been like oh hello you know and what i realized is that that was actually useful that um treating famous people with respect but also like a normal person is actually in these situations of high stress how they want to be treated mm. so that was kind of a nice learning and instead of feeling like oh i should have known who that was and feeling embarrassed i mean i should have probably in some cases but in other cases you know once i am once i was on the side of working with speakers of course i knew who they were and i tried to step back into that place of not knowing who they were and treating them like a normal person and building rapport that way and it's been kind of lovely to just have that human to human interaction mm. and um and support them through the process rather than make them feel like they're othered and special and then they can't actually ask for the really niche things that everyone else wants to ask for because they are othered so that is one of the funniest realizations of the job is treat famous people like normal people just like anyone else because they are because they are just humans (laughs) and that's what we all want to be is treated like humans which which is nice Thank you so much for joining us today to share all that knowledge. I think after doing this for uh, hundreds of talks and preparing so many speakers, you probably also deserve a PhD in human psychology. <laughs> Definitely not. Because <laughs> you've learned a lot about personalities. Uh, but we really appreciate it. And I'm sure as, uh, as TEDxers, we'll see you again soon. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Jay. Chloe. Thanks. 
I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Chloe and that you learned something new about how we prepare speakers here at TED. Creating a TEDx talk that is compelling, relatable, interesting is really hard to do, but you do it every single day in every part of the world. And we are as interested in hearing about your process, your idea, your tricks, your outlines, as we are about learning from TED. So please, if you've got something to share, upload it to the TEDx Hub in the file section so we can see it and so that your fellow TEDx organizers can see it as well. Thank you for joining me at this episode of Solving for X and I hope to see you again soon. <music>